So today we have Jermaine Finlay on the show. It's such a pleasure to have you here, Jermaine. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Stefan. <laughs> I wanted to jump straight in. I We had a conversation quickly before we started recording about how fitting your profile is with kind of the forever student and like what we stand for. You help women um, feel empowered by taking control of particular areas of their life. You provide them with certain tools and resources. Where did that start? Um, where did that passion start and how have you kind of developed it into what you're currently doing? Yeah, so it was kind of women's health specifically kind of was a bit of an organic evolution. I actually, after several years of burnout working in the hospitality industry about a decade ago, I just thought, you know, enough's enough. I need to do something that's a lot more aligned to my values. Um, and I became a personal trainer and I honestly, I was probably in the industry for about three months and thought this is way too aesthetic. I need to go deeper than this. And what I thought was going to be nutrition ended up being naturopathy. Uh, so I enrolled into my Bachelor of Health Science to become a naturopath. And I thought if I'm going to be studying this, I need to immerse myself in it. So I started work experience alongside my degree uh, at a women's natural fertility clinic. Uh, and I think from that, it gave me that advantage throughout my uh, degree over the five years and then my clinical prac because I, I really knew and understood women. I had helped build out one of the first uh, PCOS programs in Australia um, for with another PhD in reproductive medicine. Uh, and that was while I was still in college. So by the time I got to my clinical prac, I was kind of that go-to girl for anything women's health. Uh, from there, I got poached um, from some leaders in the field here in Australia and throughout America um, to go and work in their clinic. So that was kind of where I started and it kind of took me down the path. I guess it wasn't initially a passion of mine to go into women's health, but it was something that I was good at. But what I did find after stepping into my business uh, about five years ago, I started to kind of, naturopathy is a very holistic modality, you know, natural medicine, uh, nutritional medicine, uh, herbal medicine, all integrated. But it still didn't feel holistic to me because a lot of women that I was working with uh, were struggling with the self-sabotage and the self-doubt and the self-loathe and, you know, all of these different elements that I could relate to because after the season of burnout and all of these incongruent behaviours between my intentions and how I was actually showing up in my own life, I found it really relatable and I felt felt as a practicing practitioner, it just didn't feel right for me prescribing these supplements and I guess these diet and exercise programs and it causing more inner conflict for women because they knew what they should do, but they just, they couldn't stay consistent. There was this handbrake, this deeper root cause. And so that took me to, I was really fascinated with human behavior through that season um, and why we do what we do. So I studied uh, NLP or neuro-linguistic programming. And through that, I ended up birthing my first online program. And I genuinely feel like that was a season of my life where everything came together. I just felt truly in alignment. I built this program out and it incorporated everything that I'd built over the last decade, including, you know, nutrition and exercise, but in a really holistic way where it's not about calories or macronutrients and micronutrients. It was about using color therapy and food to cycle with our cycle. Uh, it was creating awareness around the subconscious elements from our upbringing and our belief systems that we've created and stacked from that early age and how that is kind of simmering under the surface of everything that we do day to day. It also brought in elements of emotional release and identifying the first time a person had experienced anger or sadness um, so that we could release 
that subconscious and I guess cellular memory of that emotion. Uh, and then the back end of it was really reigniting that passion because I found specifically for women as well, we go through these seasons and we typically you know, our identity and our roles as a woman change throughout each season. And we typically tend to lose a sense of self when we're in our relationships and then our role as a mum and our role as a career woman. And so having this time with women in a container where we can really get down to like what lights you up, like purpose doesn't have to be career purpose. It doesn't mean you have to do some grand gesture that's going to change the world. But it's like, I genuinely believe purpose is living your authentic truth, living in your authentic expression, because when you do, it gives a light to others to be able to, you know, inspire or, you know, whatever it may be. And that facilitates the change in humanity when we can speak our own truth and share that message. So once I had done a couple of cohorts of that course, I just thought, you know, this is it. I don't think I can go back to just being a practitioner in naturopathy or a personal trainer. Like there is a being beneath the behavior. And I found, you know, my fascination in that has just grown. And I think now in this later season, I draw back on my own personal evolution and it went from burnout. And through that past practice personality of stress, it destroyed my relationships. It destroyed my finances. And with time I had full body breakdown. I hadn't had a period for a couple of years. I was diagnosed with infertility. I was told I'd never be able to conceive naturally by the time I was 26. Um, And so I had my own hormone frustrations and I began to recognize that all disease has disease under the surface. So for me, there was certain patterns of needing control, needing safety, needing acceptance from my childhood that was rippling into my behaviours, that was driving the stress, that was changing my physiology. And so now where you would have come across on my profile, it's a lot of what I speak to. I think a lot of people in society are so disconnected from self and we're getting faster and faster in this world of external stimulus that we're losing sense of coming back to that inner world. Uh, And I don't think people actually recognise the potency of the mind. You know, we know that anxiety just a thought of anticipating the future and stacking events that haven't yet and may not even happen is causing a physiological change in the body in this present moment. Now we feel the heart rate pick up, we feel sweaty and clammy, same as if we're reminiscing on a past event or brewing over a past argument and that anger causes the tension in the physical body now, even though there's no conflict or threat in our present environment. And so what I really am passionate about in this season of life is teaching people that, you know, if we know that stress and anxiety can create the body, communicate to the immune cells and the hormones to create this dis-ease, then what can feelings of gratitude and happiness and joy and love do in the body? And, you know, there's a lot of science to prove this, but unfortunately no one can capitalise on people who realise they are the medicine, right? So I guess that's where my um, big passion is now is, is speaking to this. I love it. I love it. I think you're you're doing everyone a really amazing service by pursuing this obviously you've you've struggled with um the problems that you're trying to solve yourself which Mm is one extremely authentic right like when it comes to having a conversation with with people that you that you're helping um and two i think just the question on like there's so many questions that i have now based on what you've said but one of the things that kind of stood out was um someone having an intention to someone following up, like basically creating that discipline um, to continue with whatever practice it may be. But like a lot of people just kind of fall off the wagon. Mm. What is it that you typically see 
and it might be a loaded question because I'm sure there's a multitude of reasons, but like, what do you typically see being the main reason with, with the people that you speak to for them not being able to stick to, you know, a particular practice that they know is beneficial for them? Mm, I think a lot of it comes down to underlying sense of unworthiness, um, feelings of, you know, as a child, we are born into this world in a pure state of love. And the first couple of our years is unconditional love. I mean, we can poo and spew on anybody and we'll still be the cutest thing in the world. And then all of a sudden we start to, I guess, push boundaries, discover our own identity outside of the parents, outside of the home. And, and with that, you know, love becomes a little bit more conditional or feels that perception of reality, feels that love becomes more conditional. And, you know, a child in that first seven years of their life, they can't, they can't contextualise the world around them. They're making meaning of the world based on how the world makes them feel. Our brain waves are fluctuating between delta and alpha, and they're not quite at that beta state where they can actually, you know, rationalize the world around them. So say, for example, mum and dad are having an argument and maybe dad walks out or the parents are going through a divorce. The child can't con conceptualize that, you know, that's an adult relationship, an adult conflict. The internalized perception is they don't love me. They don't, I'm not worthy. His dad's left me. He doesn't love me. And we create this sense of perceived abandonment. Uh, this is just an example. I mean, there are so many different nuances that can come into an individual's life. But then we take that initial belief system, which could be transient, it could disappear, but then life experience seems to validate and stack. So perhaps then that sense of I'm not worthy, I'm not lovable, we go to school and maybe we say a speech and people laugh at us and we get our first boyfriend and he kisses another girl and and we get our first job and maybe we get fired or someone else gets the promotion and these events keep stacking and hardwiring that initial belief system that I'm not worthy, I'm, I'm not good enough. And so when it comes time, you know, in our 30s or whenever where we got to step out to start a business and it's like there's this underlying fear, the subconscious part of our brain, the ego, let's say, the protective personality, it's going, hang on, hang on, this isn't safe. You've been laughed at before. You've been ridiculed. What if people don't like you? I think every single human being is geared to seek love and acceptance. So there is that fear that, you know, not everyone might like what I say. I might disappoint people or let people down. And so... We do hold ourselves back due to elements with that. Uh, I find, you know, binge eating, there is definitely, when we're looking at the diet side of things, it is so complex because, you know, one, we can look at the macro level at the food, the way food's designed and marketing's designed and the chemicals within a lot of the modern day food now that it, it does give us that dopamine hit. And, you know, also the fact that, you know, say, for example, if you're having a bag of crisps, that or chocolate or all of these really palatable foods, they start to digest and break down on the tongue. So by the time they get to the stomach, there's no substance to stimulate the stretch receptors to say we're full here. So there's definitely, when we're looking at eating and these behaviours, there's definitely an element where we've got to look at the food that we're having, the way it's marketed to us. But then we've got to have a look at what are the meaning, what's the meaning of things like food? You know, if you're coming from a family where food meant love, Maybe you're then going to be someone where if you've been hurt by love, you turn by food. If you need to, you know, if it's a family affair, you turn to food. And maybe there's a huge emotional attachment to food. Uh, for myself, I did have a season in my life where I struggled with binge eating behavior for several years. Uh, this was a lot of where my uh, inner conflict came from because it wasn't congruent with the person who I was studying and striving to be in natural health. Uh, and for me, it was every time I had to show up, every time I felt stressed, it was 
my self-soothing. Uh, and that was, you know, based on childhood traumas and elements from my upbringing, but it was the way that I self-soothed. So these different nuances for how people pull the handbrake in their own life is so varied, but very often it comes back to that first seven years of our life and the meaning that we've created to the world around us. And for you specifically, when you speak about the food example, mm-hmm. how did you how did you deal with that, overcome that or like mitigate that? Uh, it definitely, there was a season in my life and I think for a lot of people, their moment of waking up, it comes through crisis, right? It, during times of crisis, we don't grow, we evolve and we become something new. And I was in a season of my life where my body was breaking down, my relationship was breaking down, I had no money, like I just felt like my world was crumbling and I felt trapped. And it was in that moment where I had to step back and take personal responsibility. I said, enough's enough. Like from now I live life on my own terms. And it took with that, a, it wasn't an overnight thing, but it was the awareness that I say proceeds change. And so becoming the observer in my life, it wasn't like focusing in on the food and what I was doing while I was eating the food. It was taking that couple of steps further back to go, what happened that day before I turned to the food? What was happening for my nervous system? What was happening? You know, what was I feeling internally? Where was I feeling it in the body? Who was I around that could have kind of triggered anything? And I guess the more I became aware the more I could kind of understand a little bit more and I could kind of reframe and redefine that early childhood meaning that I had given to an example. Uh, But then also when you become the observer, I guess when you see something, you can't unsee it, right? It's like if someone points out a ticking clock on the wall that you never heard ticking until they pointed it out. And then now that it's obvious, it's frustrating. And so I think when Mm -hmm. I became aware of my own behaviours and the more I observed the more I was motivated to make change, there was like this internal drive that I think was also a bit of a catalyst. But I think in any area of life, you cannot make change until you get out of the hot seat where you're in survival and you're reacting and your ego or that protective personality is making the decisions for you. You're never going to be able to make effective and sustainable change. You've got to step back, take that breath, come back into the body, become the observer. And with time, the, I guess the gap gets smaller. So it might be I was doing it less frequent and for less, you know, a binge previously used to last maybe a month or a couple of weeks, a couple of hours, it would vary. But then with time, it might just be a packet of chips binge or a block of chocolate binge. And then I wake up and collect myself and, and be like, no, 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 this isn't congruent. And then I would make the change. And then with time, you know, the, the duration of the event and the duration between events started to get smaller and I think people have to recognize that change is hard especially if you've been doing behaviors that have been years of stacking and hardwiring it it, you've got to allow that grace for time to be able to come back and rewire and create new pathways of of least resistance for the brain yeah and I think just building on that a lot of people may kind of tie their identities to certain things in their life right Mm -hmm. so this could be like their job it could be a person it could be family it could be even things like you know religion and nationality and whatever else and and it may be hard for them to once once those things come to an end right like when that relationships come to an end or when that uh when that job comes to an end abruptly a lot of people struggle with like who they are outside of that Mm -hmm. like and for me like I, i can see it from my eyes where you know when someone's 
a lot of people when they when they first meet you it's like oh so what do you do and that that's kind of what you're associated where are you from what do you do like it, it's it's kind of like it's not like who are you mm. um so when it comes to something along those lines if someone's listening to this and and it's like oh you know what i've just been through a breakup and i, I have no idea who i am outside of that person i'm no i've no idea who i am outside of that job like what type of advice would you give to them or like are there steps or practices that like maybe can help them just get that one percent you know Mm. closer to the answer absolutely again it's going to come back to being the observer but one thing that I always like to draw back to there is and for anyone who's listening they can jump on google and just punch in hertz vibration scale and I'm talking hertz as in electricity so hz or h-e-r-t-z and you'll see this color scale come up and it's got a list of emotions down one side uh, and the emotions have numbers labeled next to them. And then you'll see on some of the scales, it'll show contracted or expansive. And so these emotions, say, for example, under the state of neutrality, we start seeing things like uh, shame, guilt, anger, uh, sadness, and they're kind of lower vibrational emotions. And with the exception of anger, if you think about, again, becoming the observer, if you observe your body when you're experiencing any of those emotions, say, for example, you're feeling embarrassed about something or you're feeling sad or a little bit low. I mean, you can put a, a, a picture in your mind, just a stereotypical someone with depression. And, you know, you, what happens to the body of that person? They typically slouch. They talk a little bit slower, a little bit lower. They don't want to take up space. So when you think about the nature of what's happening with the body in the presence of that emotion, it is quite contracted. Whereas anything above that neutrality, when we start thinking of things like joy and love, um, you know, peace, we're a lot more expansive. Like I think about joy, for example, that's typically a spontaneous moment that calls the body to action. If you see a dolphin, you point it out, or if your team wins a game, your hands go up in the air and you become the observer in these moments. And the body is expansive. It's taking up space. And if you're excited, you're speaking a little bit faster, you use your hands a lot more, you lean in, you're more higher pitched. And so for myself, and I'll revert back when I said uh, with the lower vibration, with the exception of anger, I do think that anger, there's a reason why anger can express quite expansive, but be considered a low vibrational emotion is that it's, Anger, a lot of people are like, oh, you don't want to be angry. We've been grown up in a generation where it's like, you know, be a polite young lady. You don't want to be angry. You don't want to be aggressive. But I think the reason anger is quite expansive in the physiology is that anger is typically a catalyst for change. It's often anger, internal frustration or anger that ends the relationship or ends the cycle of whatever you're processing internally. It's that, that emotion that's like enough's enough. Like I can't do this. And so when we're looking at these emotions and, you know, talking about lower vibrational emotions, it's not discrediting them and their validity. They definitely need to be there. But it's like if you're living life on autopilot and, you know, you've lost your sense of identity outside of a relationship and you're trying to discover who you are again and you maybe you haven't followed any of your hobbies since you were a kid and you've just been so invested in work and your relationship that you don't even know what you would enjoy doing. Be the observer and just see how you're responding to things throughout the day. I know for myself personally, when I became aware of this, I noticed that some friendships, I would come home and I would just feel exhausted. I'd feel depleted. I'd, you know, spend time looking at myself in the mirror and just feeling 
aren't like not worthy and not good enough. However, I had other friendships and I would come home and I'd literally follow my partner around the house and be like, oh my God, this person's doing this and this person's doing this. And, and so I noticed that, you know, I can make a decision there. How much time do I spend with each of these different people? And, uh, you know, then when you start having a look at conversations, what conversations do you start to kind of pull back and your body will pull back and you just kind of lose interest? And what conversations really draw you in and get you excited? What, you know, you might see something on television, it might be cyclists or swimming and you think, oh, wow, like that was really interesting. Maybe I could do that. Or someone mentions they went to a pottery class and it's like, oh, cool. And there's... There's no, I don't think anything's ever static for too long either. So you might take something up and enjoy it in the hour and then go to go back to it next week and find it's just not the vibe that you're feeling in that week. But unless we become aware and again, become the observer of ourselves and our life, we would never actually be able to realign and course correct in, towards what's actually in alignment for us. Yeah, totally. I, I, I totally agree. I, I try to take time every day as well just to, just to kind of disconnect mm. to to analyze you know what I mean like having you have so many moments throughout the day and if you just keep going you're never gonna you know be still and and really understand what's going on and for me the biggest thing is like seeing what are energy givers and what are energy drainers there's certain things that like it could even be family, right? Or it could mm. even be a friend. Like you said, when you come home and you kind of feel drained, it's like because that person's drained your energy, maybe by complaining to you or, you know, um, whatever it may be. And there's other friends that like uplift you and listen and are present. And I think people do need to take a bit more time to to analyze that. And I think specifically when you're at a crossroads in life, mm. um, to go through your day and really and really analyze those those key moments. One of the things that I've I've heard you talk about quite a bit is being present. And um, we, we often live either in the past or in the future. Um, firstly, what do you think is the reason for us not being able to be present? I feel like it's shifted a lot over the last few years. Like it's just getting kind of worse and worse. Mm. Um, and secondly, like how can we become more present? Mm-hmm. Great question. I think, you know, I speak a lot about people living in the past and anticipating the future. And a lot of this was inspired to me by the works of Joe Dispenza. He speaks a lot to this as well. And I think when you ask what I think may be contributing to this, I think definitely the changing external world, uh, social media, everything's in front of us now. And I think there is this perceived expectation that we should be doing more and being more and if these people are traveling and doing this we're we're seeing a lot more than what we've ever seen and there's a lot more on the table more things for us to explore and try that create room for us then to self-loathe and self-doubt for why aren't I doing that why haven't I done that why don't I have enough money to do this and so that in itself creates this future expectation of where we quote unquote should be And again, when we're getting that stimulus coming at us from all angles, I think we really lose that moment to step back and think, well, hang on a second, is this actually aligned for what would feel good in my life? And I use business as an example for this is that, you know, often, and I've been in the business coaching funnel where you just, you keep going from coach to coach to coach and, you know, they start going, oh, we're going to go for a 10K month and a six figure year and, and you 
stay within that funnel long enough that you don't actually recognize for some people that the ladder that you're climbing is actually leaning on the wrong wall. And, you know, I think uh, just drawing back to, you know, how we start living ahead of ourselves without actually coming in and just checking in. And yeah, I think it is because there's uh, a lot more food on the plate now for for what we can consume. And it's just, you know, navigating where what's actually in alignment for us. And I think as well, there's a lot more conversation in the emotion space. I mean, my grandparents' generation, women were medicated with Valium or Lithium for hysteria and men were told, suck it up, men don't cry, you know, be a man. And so that kind of evolved into our parents' generation who, again, you know, it's you don't speak about how you feel. It's no one else's business and you just got to deal with it. And I think now we're in a generation where there's a big push for validating your emotion, exploring your past, exploring the layers of the subconscious and the trauma and the subtle nuances that have created who you are there's a lot available now for people to explore that so again I think that can start to have people hang too long in the past you know start really thinking and again this is looking at the people in the personal development space but there are generations before that that didn't have access to these tools and they I'm going to use this as an example. My mother is someone who struggled with addiction, alcohol addiction to mask pains from her childhood upbringing. And, you know, the common theme for her, and I see it a lot with women in her generation is, but this happened and this happened and and like justifying their behaviours because of all the pain that they've been dealt in their past. And so this is, I guess, a lot of various examples of both people who are waking up and people who still aren't cottoned on to these resources of how we can live in the past or live in the future and I think this becomes really important there's so many new age tools and it really is finding what works for you as an individual some people like journaling and some people you know journaling's just not for them I find the most simple way in a given moment and no one needs to know that you're doing it you don't need to take time out to do it but it comes back to the breath Because if we can become, again, the observer and become conscious and then just consciously and intentionally take in our breath and not the breath where we're like, oh, taking a big gasp of breath there because we've been holding our breath all day or not the kind of breath where our shoulders lift as we're trying to like take that shallow breath in just to kind of survive. But that intentful breath where we're just recognizing, following the breath into the body, feeling the belly expand as the diaphragm drops and and creates space through the chest and opens that heart. And just through that awareness of following the breath into the body, within that moment, you're no longer in the future and you're no longer in the past. You're actually in the present moment. And I think the more that we can practice this, I like to ask my clients to find four triggers that they do every day. For example, it might be every time they get a red traffic light, every time they do the dishes, uh, every time they turn their laptop on at work, whatever it may be, that activities that they do every day and use that as a trigger to anchor and practice until it becomes that subconscious or unconscious memory to breathe. And then I get them to breathe in for the count of four, hold for the count of four, release for four and repeat for four. So four triggers, four seconds for each round of the cycle for four cycles. And this in itself allows us intentionally to keep coming back to the present moment. And the more we practice, the more we perfect. So all of these different things, journaling, meditation, breathing, it is a practice. But with any practice, the more we're consistent, the more we show up with intent. It might be for a small chunk initially and then it might build, but we start carving new pathways in the brain that start allowing us, you know, being in the present moment then becomes 
a lifestyle. It becomes a part of who you are because it's now hardwired into, you know, the behaviors that you live throughout your day. So yeah, definitely breath is the most effective way to come back into the present. Yeah. And I love that you've, you've kind of, um, made it like an easy habit to start off with, you know, because I feel like when people hear, oh, meditate 20 minutes a day or 30 minutes a day, it becomes a bit intimidating. So just saying like, oh, let's just find these four moments every day, like whether it's when you're making your coffee, whether it's you're in the shower or traffic light, whatever it may be. Um, I think that becomes so much more um, like a doable than if you're making it, making it grander. Um, when, when it comes to um, like, like a lot of people might struggle from going from like seeing that they have an issue or a problem to actually making the change or exploring the change. Mm -hmm. What do you feel is the, um, the block between awareness and action? Mm. I think it's that spaciousness. I think a lot of people are finishing their stressful day or their stressful week or their stressful life and then going, I'm going to do this. But the brain, there all of these receptors in the brain are full. Like you've literally just been go, 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 go. And then you expect that you're going to find this five minutes of silence and you're going to get all these downloads and life's going to become peaceful. I think a lot of people have to recognize that if your life and your past practice personality is one of stress and, you know, busyness, then you need to create the spaciousness. And reverting back to how we started this conversation, for a lot of people, there are a lot of subconscious underpinnings from our childhood that can underlie that need for busyness, that need for stress to kind of help us feel safe and help us feel like we're in control. So then if in that moment we think, okay, I'm going to try and sit quietly and be intentional in this moment, that can feel really uncomfortable. That can be a trigger in and of itself. And so again, I, I come back to that awareness precedes change. I think we have to recognise that no change can happen when we are currently in a place of stress because we're reacting. And if you think about that word reacting and we break it in half, we are reacting past practice behaviours. Whereas if we become responsible or responsive, I like to look at the word as responsible as we are. It's, it's our ability to respond. And so a lot of people think, oh, you know, I want to do this, but this has happened or this person said this or, or whatever. And it's like we cannot control people, circumstance, things outside of us. We can't control even the people who we love the most dearest. We can't control their opinions or their behaviours or the words that they say. The only thing that we have control of or the ability to respond with is our, our own behaviour. And so, you know, all of these excuses that come up that stop us from being congruent with our intentions if we can go, okay, I have the ability to respond in this moment rather than retaliating or, and I find specifically for women, a conversation I've had a lot more so recently is uh, they feel with these perceived expectations of the role of the mother and the school drop-offs and also maintaining work and being the good wife and keeping the house clean and all of these things that stack, we often don't bring a voice to what we're processing internally until the lid blows off the simmering pot and explodes. And so we then reach out for help to the partner, but it's in a more reactive way because we've let it simmer and simmer. And then the response is obviously reactive. And so I find the woman then internalizes, no one cares, no one listens. Like I, I've just, I've got no support. 
my husband doesn't support me. I've just got no support in this. And I find that's a really common dialogue to the extent that I've had a couple of women even say to me, and it scares me that this isn't just a one-off circumstance where they say, you know, um, I, I just wish I could get in a car accident. Like it's not a suicide call, but I just feel like if I'm in hospital for a week, they've got to figure it out by themselves and I can just collect myself. And I just think, why do we see that as our only out when, you know, if coming back to that responsibility, if we look at the way we're having conversations, the way we're communicating and what place we're communicating from, we have the ability, you know, do I get angry or do I maybe sit and journal and process what I'm feeling and then perhaps organise a time to have this conversation so that I can share how I feel but give him the opportunity to process how he's feeling and come together in, in a conversation where maybe then he feels he can support me and help me. And I think when we have a look at our way that we respond to the world, it's going to be a lot more empowering for our outcome for change than if we keep living in survival and reacting and reacting past behaviours as well. I was going to, yeah, I wanted to follow up on that because I think that's important. A lot of couples would struggle with effective communication, whether it's making sense of their own thoughts and how to voice that to their partner Mm. or saying it in a way where they know their partner will understand. Like, I think the advice that you gave now is basically take time to reflect on your own thoughts Mm. um, before reacting. Maybe write them down, maybe meditate on it, maybe just give it time, right? And it'll start making more sense if, if if you are in a place of quiet. Are there any other ways to improve that communication, you believe? Uh, there's a couple of examples I can give. I think as well, when we, uh, I find for myself, and the more that I've given this a voice, I find that it's it's um, not alone in this, but often we recycle the conversation in our head before we have it. So maybe we're hanging out the laundry and we're thinking, oh, he's done this and he's done this and I'm going to tell, and we have the whole conversation in our head. And then all of a sudden he comes home and we explode and we hear it for the first time. And we think, oh my God, I don't, We in hindsight, we sit back and we think, I don't even know if I believe that. I feel so silly now. And I think if we can start to recognise, like, we we have to find a way to get this out so we can hear it. And this is where journaling can be really effective, uh, talking to a friend, you know, having the conversation so that you can hear it before you speak it, like, in that reactive way. I think that is really important. I think when we're looking at relationships, when we're looking at the masculine and the feminine, when we're looking at that from an energy perspective as well as a biological perspective, I think, you know, the hormone and the biochemistry within a woman and certain size and functions and structures within our brain, we have a lot more words in our vocabulary. So you'll probably find with this awareness now that women are quite wordy to get to get to a simple answer, we'll explain and we'll take this scenic route with all of our words to explain the answer. Whereas, and, you know, this isn't a sexist remark. They're, they've actually shown that the man's brain isn't, you know, we don't have as much of a vocabulary. We, they say it how it is. Like if it's a yes, no answer, you get your yes or your no. And it doesn't mean that he doesn't care or he's not listening or he's not interested. It's just that's the question that you asked and that's the answer that you got. There's no more to that. And so I think between relationship dynamics, I think it's really important, one, for a woman to understand that just because it's yes or no or short doesn't mean that he doesn't care. And I think for a man, the the feminine energy really needs to feel presence. 
And so for a man to think, even if he is just like, here she goes again, just going on a huge tangent, for him to be present for her and even just at the end to reflect and say, oh, from what you've said, it sounds like you're trying to say this, is this right? And get that confirmation. I think just allowing that time and space, she will feel seen and heard and that's what she will need. And then when we come into the energy aspect of it, the masculine and the feminine, I think there's a lot, and my background isn't in psychology, it is just, you know, hobby research that has taken me to explore these different elements. But, you know, there is um, there is uh, certain theories that can, I guess, shape a person and their tendencies to unconsciously push people away or need their constant uh, attention. And so I think becoming aware of what's happened again in our past, because sometimes people can... So the masculine energy really needs to feel needed. Uh, And this isn't like, I'm not talking about like men and women, but just that energy, that masculine energy, it needs to feel needed. Uh, It likes to lead. And so allowing for a woman to allow her man to lead, uh, to make decisions, to not feel like she's just helicoptering over saying, you haven't done this and you haven't done this and you need to do this. Allowing him to lead is going to allow him to want to give more back to you. And I think for the feminine energy, we really, like I said, we need that presence. We need to feel seen and heard. We need to feel supported. And so for that healthy masculine energy to be able to help her feel seen and heard through that presence and and feel supported. Uh, It's not, you know, going back to like, oh, the women are weak and they need a man or anything like that. It is just when we find that healthy polarity in relationship where, you know, we have that natural leader and we have that, you know, additional support and presence it really does create a really beautiful energetic polarity that that allows that beautiful com- communication and, and flow in a relationship. Yeah, like while you were saying that, I, I agree. Because like looking at my relationship with my wife, I think when we communicate, it's it's very obvious that I'm the man and she's the woman just in terms of like how we speak and how much we speak and how much we explain. Mm. Um, so you're totally you're totally spot on there. Um, I think it's also just a question of like for for the guys listening, it's also it's a question of presence, but it's also one of patience. It's like listening and truly listening without like the constant need to to respond. Mm. Um, But no, spot on there. I I would also like to just touch on um, just more about what how you particularly help um, help women. I would love to just dive in a little bit on your business, in your business, so that we have a clear understanding that who's listening to this might be able to reach out to you if they're if they're struggling with with particular things. I know that you have um, like like a it's it's not a course. I think it's I think it's a, a few different programs that you that you currently have as well. Could you just talk a bit more about that? Yeah, definitely. So I recently stopped taking clients in January of this year, uh, so that I could focus on my podcast, which has just recently launched uh, last month. Uh, and um, writing a book. So I'm no longer taking one-on-one clients. Uh, I do have resources on my website, just free resources, uh, specifically around women's hormones. So hormones has been the area that I've always worked in, endometriosis, hormone balancing, um, that kind of thing. Uh, Because I'm kind of stepping out of that naturopathic place, uh, those resources are now available on my website around gut health, hormone balance, that kind of thing. Uh, now I'm in the space where I will just be doing two cohorts of my program 
each year. Uh, the program itself is called Get Your Shit Together <laughs> um, because I feel like that is the dialogue when people are at that breaking point where they're like, I just, I just need to get my shit together. Uh, and so the course itself is broken down into uh, four separate uh, modules. The first we are looking at the mind and this is looking at that subconscious belief systems that are driving why we do what we do and helping people get off autopilot because a lot of the time people wake up on the same side of the bed and turn off the alarm and shuffle to the bathroom and get in the car and drive to the same job through the same dope like same route of travel to be around the same people that trigger the same emotions and it just stacks and we become so hardwired to the point that even our emotions and the way we react is firing up is because of the repetition, because of that automaticity that we've created through life. So that first module is really understanding where we're on autopilot and how certain elements from our past have come to shape that. Uh, and it's really just, again, becoming the observer in that first phase. The second phase, so it's broken into mind, body, heart and soul. The second phase is we move into body. We do use a little bit of the awareness of the chakra systems. Uh, and so with that awareness, we start to view the body in that same sense and how we can address certain symptoms, you know, reproductive symptoms by supporting a little bit more of the sacral chakra. And we can do that through food. Uh, we can do that through uh, our environment, getting down by the water. Uh, within that module as well, we talk about gut health. We talk about uh, the microbiome and understanding why the microbiome is so important for our health because we're only 10 percent human DNA and 90 percent bacterial DNA so it's pretty significant I think if people want to reclaim their health to have that awareness so that they can see how food can be medicine in that sense uh, and we also uh, go into flow foundations which is learning how to cycle with your cycle so again using food as medicine giving certain food strategies to be able to cycle with the certain seasons of the woman's cycle and and becoming aware again awareness proceeds change of uh, different times of the month where women might need to hibernate and fill up their cup and where they're going to be feeling a little bit more extroverted and they can fill up their calendar. Uh, then from there, we move into the heart module and this is the emotional release work. So a lot of this comes from uh, the NLP side of things. So with this, there are specific guided meditations that allow us to go down the timeline and dive into the unconscious uh, and recognize when we first started experiencing certain emotions and allowing us to release those. Uh, there's also some uh, guided meditations around uh, the inner critic and some certain NLP strategies that allow us to make peace with that inner, uh, inner conflict. Uh, again, it's the ego or that protective personality and recognizing that, you know, even though the behaviors are expressing in a limiting way, they are still to serve a higher purpose and recognizing that our conscious intention and our ego have the same higher purpose of love and acceptance or whatever it may be. And so it allows us to make peace with ourselves and find that congruency within ourselves. And then the last module is all about purpose. And it is, it's being the observer, finding what lights us up, uh, exploring those different elements. Uh, so I have ran this program. Um, I like to provide the option depending on where everyone's financial situation is, whether they can just do it self-paced in their own time. I find the most effective uh, for that program is where we do it as a group coaching. So if, it'll be at the start and the end of each year where we do that as a group. Uh, and honestly, when I released this program three years ago, it it blew my own mind. I, I think because of the self-understanding and the self-awareness that people experience through this that allows them to make effective change, 
I think that has given it its power where women, you know, came into that program who maybe were struggling with a superficial disease, for example. So like acne or hormone issues, period issues, weight gain, and all of these aesthetic elements that they want to try and fix. And then once they went through this journey of coming back to self and finding what lights them up, they actually found this inner glow. And a lot of people came like came back and said, you know, people are commenting on how I have this glow about me now. Like I have this. And I think that's really what started me on this path of recognizing that, you know, we've got to light our own fire and permeate that light rather than seeking things to fix us from the outside in. Um, so there's a lot, there's a lot around changing morning habits and setting new routines. Um, and it couples in with a lot of the works of Robin Sharma, um, who has written a few books around habit change. Uh, there's a lot of the, I guess, uh, cognitive behavioral stuff that Tony Robbins speaks to that's nestled through it. There's a lot of Joe Dispenza's work, and then there's a lot of energy medicine, uh, components that ripple through. So it's something that I'm very excited for and about. I love it. I like how you've combined so many different things to really package it and make it so impactful. Mm. One of the things you just said was you help women understand throughout the month when to kind of take a step back and rest and when to when to give. Mm. Could you elaborate on that and like how you go about that recommendation? Yeah. And again, it is just generalized advice because, you know, there's no one size fits all in anything, even our biochemistry. And the reality is there are a lot of women who are on a synthetic cycle if they're on birth control, hormonal birth control, where they're not actually getting exposure to natural hormones, uh, women in different seasons of their life. So it's not necessarily applicable in all examples, but it does create awareness. And if we are still a cycling woman, we go through our follicular phase, which is, you know, where we go through menstruation. Uh, From our follicular phase, we start heading into the ovulatory phase or ovulation. And then from there, we start going into our luteal phase where we start shedding the lining and getting ready for that next period. And when we start to have a look at the ebb and flow of the hormones that are creating these physiological reproductive changes you know when we're in our mid-cycle around ovulation we're getting a little peak in testosterone all of our hormones are at their highest point so when we become the observer in our life we might notice that in the mirror that month or that week we feel like we look a little bit slimmer we're holding a little less water retention we feel a little bit more confident like physically with what we're showing up with but we're also feeling more sociable if we think about ovulation ovulation is the time where we're fertile and so I always look at things from an evolutionary perspective if we're most fertile then our biology and the way we've been geared as a woman is to you know be sociable if we're here to reproduce we need to be sociable at this point and when we become aware of it we do become sociable in that ovulatory window we feel more confident. We feel like we look more attractive. So because we're getting that little peak in testosterone, some women find during this window that if they are into exercise, they can go a little bit heavier. They can go for their strength training. They can push with a higher intensity. Um, whereas when we start to head into the luteal phase, after we've gone through ovulation, and if we've not conceived, then all of our hormones will drop to allow the uh, shedding of the lining. And so once all of those hormones drop, this is often where we do feel a little bit depleted. We feel a little bit flat. We just, we don't really have as much energy. And this is the season where I think women are so conditioned to have to go 365 days of the year at the same intensity. And a lot of them don't actually step back and, you know, they'll be in the thick of it and think, why, 
why am I going through this this week? Why do I look so shit? Why do I look so flubby? And why can't I perform in the gym? And it's like, well, take a step back and you'll recognize you're having the same conversation every month. And when you, when you become aware of that, it's like, stop working against your body. We can work with it. And so knowing that this window is coming up, I generally start to recommend a little bit more restorative work. I mean, you can still go to the gym and do that thing, but don't be trying to get PBs in the gym or, you know, doing high intensity training. You're probably going to want to do a little bit more yoga, you know, backing off isn't slacking off. Give yourself permission for that recovery and that regeneration through that window. Uh, And then, you know, as we get our period, I like to think of it as a detox where we're shedding. So, you know, what else can we shed from our life? And then as we start that new cycle again, uh, often you'll see women start, it's almost like they're nesting, like they start organizing, writing their to-do list. They're feeling really inspired. They, you know, they start cleaning and pottering around the house and all of these things. It's like we're nesting, getting ready for that ovulation again, getting ready for that fertile cycle. And so when, again, there's a resource on my website where people can download this and it, it, it's not, there's no science to say that this is how you're going to act. I'm not saying that this is like a definite, definite for everyone, but it's just, the awareness and as women when we realize that we are cyclical beings and we do have peaks and troughs it's not the same as men who just have the same hormones throughout the day unless they're lifting weights I um I I think just that awareness allows women to give themselves that permission because I think if you are someone who is quite consistent with your exercise and and your training and you're pushing quite hard or you've got certain goals around that or career goals it can really feel like we're slacking off if we miss a day at the gym or, you know, if we need to take that time away from work. Uh, And honestly, no one gets the best out of you if you're trying to push at that same intensity. People, when you can take that time and fill up your car, and again, communication in relationship, like let your partner know where you're at in your cycle and maybe have this conversation so he is aware of how you cycle. So then he's not feeling like crap when you're yelling at him to pick up his socks in the house as a pigsty when you were totally fine and cool with it the week before. Uh, and then he can, you know, recognize, okay, cool, she needs space right now or she needs a cuddle right now. And and um, it allows him to work with you as well. And I think when we start to create this awareness of womanhood it life starts to fall a little bit more into flow uh in our relationships in our career in our exercise in our nutrition we just don't feel like we're fighting an uphill battle all the time (laughs) so yeah i find it really powerful i like that i like that a lot could you tell people where they can find you online yeah definitely so my website is jermainefinlay.com uh i hang out most on instagram so it's uh, dot all wellness underscore podcast uh, that's where you'll find me most I am also on Facebook um, again just Jermaine Finlay naturopath uh, sorry no it's all wellness podcast uh, you'll find me there uh, and my podcast it's all wellness is available on all podcast platforms so uh, feel free to check that out episode one lets you know a lot more of my backstory and my vision for what I want to create in this space and then we dive into uh, conversations with people who have hit that point of crisis and created effective change and turned their pain into purpose and are now doing great in the world. So, yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Jermaine, thank you so much for being here today. I've learned a lot from you and um, we will make sure that we share both your website and your podcast with our audience so that they can tune in and and learn more about what you're doing. But thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you, Stefan. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) 